My name is Carl. Like Tim mentioned, uh, let me pray for you guys or for us um, before we get started. Uh, Father, if it's one thing we've learned the last 18 months, uh, we are a sheep without shepherd, without a shepherd. And we come to you right now and ask that you open our eyes and ears that we may hear you. Wipe away our apathy and blindness and stoke a renewed passion and desire for you. Help us see past the superficial. Help us see past the color of one's skin, someone's ethnicity, someone's socioeconomic status. Give us a vision. Give us your vision. Um, speak to our hearts now. Pour out your favor and grace on us and do this for your glory, our joy, and the salvation of the nations. And on Jesus' account, we ask these things. Amen. Um, all righty. Disclaimer, I didn't go to seminary. I don't do this often. <laughs> so bear with my southern accent and my rough edges. And Tim and Alex Watlington, if you're listening somewhere, you can, uh, you know, critique my homiletics and exegesis later. If I don't, you know, level up, you can cancel me. <laughs> I'm messing with you. Um, when Tim mentioned uh, he wanted to do a preaching series on racism, I smugly rolled my eyes and said, really? Uh, the Bible preaches against racism, or at least the sin behind racism, you know, on every page. Um, and uh, I thought it was pretty evident. And uh, I'm tired of the shouting match on racism in the culture. I, I, it's exhausting and it's ineffective. And, um, you know, one group shouts that we live in a racist country founded by racist people on racist principles. And if you don't agree, you're a racist. <laughs> Black Lives Matter, Neil with Kaepernick. And de facto, racism is still alive. Um, another group claims there is no racism in our country. Matter of fact, how dare you question the perfection of American uh, patriotism, you unpatriotic, treasonous Marxists. All lives matter, stand with the flag, de jure racism is dead. Um, it, it, by de jure racism, uh, what I mean is uh, laws and codes that were uh, intended to keep people separate uh, for the benefit of one group over another. And those laws were pretty much eroded and <laughs> taken down by what we now call the civil rights movement of the mid uh, to late 20th century. And that's what most people, when they say racism is dead, that's what most people are referring to, right? De jure, by law, um, codified uh, racism. Now we have this other type of racism called de facto racism. Um, and I mean segregation or racism that ex existed and exists in practice. This is more sinister because it's not written down. It goes without being said. It's baked into our social mores. Uh, these are customs, norms, prejudices, expectations um, that go without being said. They are acceptable to society or to individuals. All right, this is what most people refer to when they say, oh, no, America's racism, you know, racist or whatnot. Racism is alive. Um, and that's what I want to address today, or at least the sin behind it. 
Um, and in order to address this type of hate, we have to look deeper than the outward fruit of racism. Um, God is calling us to more than just behavior modification and performance. He wants changed hearts. And unfortunately, the heartbreaking truth is that the chaotic cultural shouting match about racism has infiltrated the church. And that's where I, uh, <laughs> that's where I sort of have a problem. Because you have conservative churches that pick one side and liberal churches that pick another. And, um, you know, if, you, if we are following Jesus and following Christ, we are called to at least try to see things the way God sees them and not fall into the trap and the convenience of viewing the world and its brokenness as the culture views it. So here we are. Tim convinced me to come up here. <laughs> I blame it on him. If there's anything heretical that happens, it's under his watch. Uh, my aim isn't to make anyone feel guilty or make others feel self-righteous or give even a comprehensive treatise on racism in America. It's impossible. Um, as Tim stated a couple of weeks ago, the sin behind racism is active in all of us. And I want to focus on that today, which brings us to Genesis 11, which I did not get the clicker. I'm sorry. The remote control. Genesis 11. All right. People call it the Tower of Babel, the story of Tower of Babel, but there's actually a city and a tower being built here. Uh, go figure. All right. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated, is that right? Yeah, as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they made brick for stone and bitumen, which is basically asphalt, for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Okay, it, it adjusted by itself. Where, okay. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, there are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Was I supposed to hit a button to make it go? I think you get it. Um, what's going on here? Why Genesis 11? Besides being a <laughs> sort of mythical story about the, our divergent languages, why in the world are we here? What's going on here? Does God have a problem with building towers and cities? I don't think that's his beef. You know, you know, the problem with the people in the story 
is the same same as it is with us today. I want to focus on verse 4. Verse 4, right there at the top. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name. Make a name. A name. All right, in Near Eastern culture, a name wasn't just what people called you. It wasn't a label. It was a record of your character. It was your reputation. It was a record of your behavior. It encompassed your past, your present, your future. It was how your family and community defined you. It spoke to one's mission and purpose. It was your very essence. And we're all familiar with the proverbial phrase, to have a good name. The Hebrew word shem, yes, the same as Noah's son, could also be translated as renown or glory. It is what makes one unique, stand out from the crowd. Your shim is something you have that others don't. This can apply individually and collectively. And those with similar shims and names, and, and they tend to huddle together, literally in families or tribes uh, or a similar race or a nation or a college or a sorority, a Facebook group. Fortnite group, (laughs) you get the point. In other words, your name here in the text could be called today your identity, your identity. The story here in Genesis 11, so why are we here in Genesis 11? Because it is a brilliant and concise depiction of man and his brokenness attempting to build or rebuild his identity apart from Yahweh's help. And the beautiful element about the text is that, like a great storyteller, it mentions the reason. (laughs) It goes into the reason and the motivation of why they're doing it, which we'll look at right now. According to the text, why are they doing this? Come, let us build ourselves a city and a a tower with its top in in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So we will not be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Ironically, this is what God commanded in Genesis 9 after after the flood. He said, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth, repeating a command he gave to Adam and Eve. So right from the beginning, the author here is cueing us that this is a story of what it looks like when we are in rebellion from God. Genesis 11, in my opinion, could could sum up all of human history, or at least this verse 4 could sum up all of human history. And ever since, ever since we've left Eden, there's been this sort of Damocles hanging over all of us, this shadow that we can't escape. And it's implicit in the text. We fear. We fear We fear more than anything that our very names, our very essence, our very being will be forgotten. The face of the earth is literally 
littered with monuments to great men and women, both ancient and modern, that attest to this fear. We subconsciously feel the weight of the whole history of the earth and, and its future bearing upon us, and we wonder, do I matter? Will anyone remember me? We fear no one will truly ever, ever see us or love us. We fear people will see us as failures and our reputations will be ruined or maybe closer to home. We fear no one will acknowledge that we washed the dishes last night. It's the same fear. Or vacuumed. Vacuumed the, the, the house. Or did some hidden service. We want to be acknowledged as special and unique. Why do you think <laughs> to be canceled is the worst punishment our culture can mete out? Because everyone knows that that is the fear we all have. Marketing firms, they center their campaigns around this fear of our, around our identity. Companies like Instagram and Facebook feed off of this fear. Demagogues, politicians play into this fear. I mean, we even have a word for it, identity politics. So in order to combat this fear of being forgotten, like the people in Genesis 11, we erect towers sometimes literally and all the times metaphorically, to elevate our names and ourselves above others so that we will not be forgotten and people will pay special attention to us. And from this artificial perch, we look down on others, not on our tower. <laughs> and it makes us feel good, right? For a moment. It makes the complications of life so simple. I'm on the tower and he or she is not on the tower. I'm good, you're bad. It makes things so simple. And we use, we use people. People become props in the drama of ourselves, <laughs> right? We use people like our spouses and kids to construct monuments to our names. And when those monuments don't want to give us glory, we tear them down and try to build new monuments, or we tear ourselves down. We might even join others with shared views so that we can hear ourselves in our echo chambers, and we collectively stand on our towers, and we call the other towers evil. And all of us want to create a significance, a worth, that's rooted in something we can feel and touch. It could be our wealth, our ethnicity, our education, our family, our culture, our neighborhoods, our country, our skin color, hint, hint, racism, our gender, our theology, our health, our denomination, our pastor. I'm just kidding. I just messed with you. <laughs> but we can. Uh, you know, by the way, we can... We can build towers of identity around, around our pain, around our failures. Some of us take pride in and build a tower of identity around being a victim, which gives us a perceived power of looking down on our victimizers. And once these foundations have been laid, we build walls around these towers by hardening our hearts and justifying our actions. And when others threaten them, we attack and defend 
with all the strategy and tactics that Napoleon himself would be impressed with. I think, <laughs> I think you get it. Um, is wealth, am, am I saying that wealth, our ethnicity, or our education, or our neighborhood, neighborhoods, or even our commitment to excellence, is that something that's bad? No. But when, when we use them to construct our identity or make our names great, the text is telling us we have a big problem. God is telling us we have a big problem. Okay then, Carl. Just point me in the right direction and let's start tearing these towers down. That's the right answer. Right? Uh, the human heart, um, well, is complicated. Or deceitful, <laughs> one might say. Because we might destroy one tower of racism only to build another tower of wokeness <laughs> or anti-racism. And by those means, we still judge people and see ourselves better than other people. So before we start swinging our sledgehammers to tear those towers down, let's go down the street to Genesis, from Genesis 11 to Genesis 12. Let's see. There we go. The call of Abram. And see if there is a way out of our mess. How much? Okay, there we go. Now the Lord said to Abram, go, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in, and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. All right. There's that word Shem again when he says in verse, what is that, verse 1 or verse 2? He says, uh, I will bless you and make your Shem great. He says, he says, I will make your name great. I will protect you. I will bless you. You see the subtle but monumental difference here. Genesis 11 mentality says, I will be forgotten, so I better get mine while I can. Everyone else be damned. Genesis 12 says, <laughs> Genesis 12 mentality says, God will remember me and make my name great. So I don't have to build my own tower of identity. I'm free to take risks. I'm free to pursue excellence in my desires without it defining my value. I'm free to fail because God will remember me. I'm free to love the unlovable. I'm free to love those different from me. I'm free to love those who think differently than me. I'm free to receive criticism, and that freedom will bring blessings to others, all predicated on this idea that God wants to make our, make our name great. Um, as an aside, let me, I just want to tell you what haunts me. <laughs> After college, uh, I attended a, a church in Augusta, Georgia, a Presbyterian church in the PCA, uh, this particular church, uh, during the Civil War, was uh, pastored by Woodrow Wilson's father. 
I always, so I would, as Tim mentioned, I love history. So I, I on Sundays, I would just, the, the campus of this church is amazing. And uh, it was built, it was designed by the man who designed the Washington Monument. So it's, a, it's just a beautiful building. And I walk around and sometimes I think I'm like, oh man, Woodrow Wilson went to church here, <laughs> right? Um, but uh, yeah, so Woodrow Wilson's father pastored the church during the Civil War. And on Sundays, during the Civil War, Woodrow Wilson's father, the pastor, would let the men out of church early so that they could work in the Confederate pistol and gunpowder <laughs> factory right down the street, which still exists, by the way. And the women would huddle in their knitting and tea clubs, and they would fast and pray. And they would fast and pray... <laughs> that God would grant the Confederacy victory over these Yankees who were threatening their way of life. A life built on the tower of white supremacy and slavery. And it haunts me because these men and women, they, they had the same Bible as we do. <laughs> they read from the same creeds. When they were kids, they were taught from the same catechisms, and I think they had the same Holy Spirit. I don't know. <laughs> but they had an identity built upon a huge lie, so much so they were willing to destroy their country and destroy fellow human beings over it. And I bring this up not to cast judgment from two centuries later, but to encourage us to check our own hearts. I mean, these were God's people. If we as God's people are depending on anything other than the Lord himself for our identity and to make our names great, our hearts are pointed in the wrong direction. It is sin. It has always been sin. And it will always be sin. And sin, as I like to remind myself, <laughs> always is practically foolish and self-defeating, all right? Sin's not some arbitrary line that God just chose and said, don't choose it, don't cross it. It is self-defeating, and that's why God is calling us to repent. Let's, let's look and see what that, whoa, that's, okay, here we go. There we go. <laughs> Proverbs 18 10 and 11 says, the name of the Lord, Shem, here we go. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. A high wall in his imagination. The safety, the comfort, the esteem promised us by our self-made towers of identity are only figments of our imagination. It can't hold water like a two-pronged fork. And interesting enough, in Genesis 11, if we go back, in Genesis 11, I, I love that it, so it says, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. They never finished the city. 
<laughs> they never finished their tower. And I look at this and I say, that's God's grace that they didn't finish it. Because maybe that's the end of all of our self-justification and identity projects. We can never finish them because ultimately they never satisfy. They never deliver on the promise. It's an endeavor that leaves us empty and exhausted. And they always come crashing down. And when they crash down, there's always collateral damage. Uh, whether we like to admit it or not. You know, whether it's a massive economic and cultural tower like white supremacy and slavery crashing down on America in the form of 600,000 deaths, the destruction of our country, mainly the destruction of the South in the Civil War, Jim Crow and segregation, or something as intimate as an identity built around having the perfect family. It will fail us, and it will hurt others, and it will hurt God's people. All right, that's depressing. The good news is this. As I stated before, Jesus wants to give us a great name and identity, but not as the world sees greatness. Jesus says, the, greatness among, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is saying here that if our concept of greatness comes at the expense of others, it's not true greatness. And that brand of greatness is not from Jesus. Christ's followers are to empower not take power or not hold on to power. <sighs> so, what are you running, what are we running toward to give ourselves a sense of significance? What is our high wall, what is our high wall of, uh, high wall in our imaginations that have promised to keep us safe and elevate us above others. I have to, I have to ask myself that <laughs> every day, right? Um, we're bombarded by the culture, what the culture says our identity should be, and we're bombarded by our own hearts. But this is the good news. No matter what the culture or your heart says, you are more than your skin color or race. You are more than your political party. You are more than your sexual orientation or desires. You are more than your successes or failures. You are more than your wealth or your poverty. You are more than your religious piety or lack thereof. You're more than your GPA or SAT scores. And you're more than your wokeness or your wounds. Whatever we are using as foundations for our self-constructed towers of identity. Jesus rhetorically asked, are you not more valuable than these? And the answer is yes. Uh, 
We are made in the image of God and are called to true greatness. And he invites us to run to the only tower where you can find it. This tower is in a city not built by human hands. It was built by Jesus' sweat and blood. Come and I will give you rest, Jesus says. You don't have to build this tower. All you have to do is seek it. And he has promised you will find it. That's all I got for you.